Well, if you would please uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're going to get back to, to this gospel today. And I've written a few notes behind me. I've, I'm sorry that I, I have no option but to stand directly in front of it. If I move it either side, it's, it's blocked. So um, at any rate, we're going to look at, at Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. And um, <clears throat> it's a bit of an unusual passage in that it, it's, it's a miracle within a miracle. And this, most commentators will say this is the only time that happens. I don't quite agree with that. It's, it's, uh, it depends on how you parse all the words, but it, that's immaterial anyway. But this is an unusual passage uh, because of that. But even though we encounter two very, very different individuals in this passage, they have one need. They have the same need that everybody has and everybody has always had from Adam and Eve forward. And that is for uh, an undying, dedicated, and active faith in the Lord. Uh, so let me read this uh, through first, beginning in verse 40. Uh, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for uh, they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named, uh, we'll, we'll call it Jairus, uh, it's, well, we'll call him Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Uh, there are a lot of uh, fascinating twists and turns here, but remember, again, the context. Always very, uh, very important to, to start with the context of where we are. Uh, here in this uh, eighth chapter, uh, really the seventh and the eighth chapter, we're looking at, at a series of, of miracles that Jesus performs shortly after calling his disciples uh, to him so they can see, they can walk with him, they can talk with him, they can observe all of these things happening. And primarily it's associated with his authority, with under undergirding who he is. 
And if you think about it, it is so difficult. There's even in scripture, there's, there's an indication of this. Uh, but if you know somebody growing up, maybe they're from your hometown or something, and they turn into the president of the United States, it's very hard to ever look at them as the president of the United States. They come on. You and I shot spitballs through the through the third grade window. I mean, you, you, you have all these associations of a very mundane nature. Well, in this case, uh, people know this this man Jesus. He was he was the carpenter's son in Nazareth, and they watched him grow up. Perhaps some of these disciples uh, knew him. It's a pretty small place, and. Um, He's got to undergird who he really is. This is not just a person who would become uh, legendary in his culture. This is God himself walking the earth. So Jesus is doing a number of very, very unusual things here. He began in this eighth chapter by casting out the demons of Mary Magdalene. If you remember, those were the first three verses. And then the really, I think, frankly, the focal point of the entire chapter was his giving of the, the parable of the sower. Because the essence of that parable is how you meet the word. How everybody's heart comes into contact with the word. Now, the, the word, of course, is Jesus, but the words that come from Jesus uh, were reflective in that parable. And they, the whole point of the parable is that word, whenever it goes out, in whatever fashion it goes out, falls on different types of hearts. And some hearts will respond very quickly, very vehemently, and then fall away from it. And you remember the story, the four different hearts that that parable covers. Uh, but the point in verse 18 was, take care then how you hear. And we focused when we were on that section about the importance not only of hearing, but responding. Because verse 21 is the uh, the aspect of, of Jesus coming uh, in contact with his mother and his brothers. And they said, we want to see you. And he has this to say. He says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Very, very important. Uh, the three words that conclude Jesus' remarks there. Who hear the word and do it. We've talked about faith over and over and over again. How it's, it's, it's belief, sure. Belief is important, but belief doesn't mean anything until you Commit yourself to what it is you believe. Make that your lifestyle, your worldview, and do it and respond to it. But he moved on from there to authority over creation. When he calmed the storm, he went from there to another encounter with the demoniac, with demons, the herdsmen over in the Decapolis on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he went from there uh, today as uh, he's going to see two more people that are going to be very, very instrumental now, he's already done what he's going to do today. What we just read, he's already done in chapter 7. He raised the servant of the centurion, a man who was dead. He raised him from the dead. He raised the widow's son from the dead. And he also forgave the sins of, of the woman who met him at the Pharisee's house. So a lot of things are just tumbling through this. And what we're going to see again today is going to have a focal point at least on these six uh, aspects, they're, they're fairly uh, commonplace, if you will, in the Gospels. Just about everything you see in, in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a focal point on faith, on genuine faith, on what it means to have genuine faith, 
how I get to that point, uh, what, uh, what indicators are not genuine faith, and so on and so on, have a lot to do with the providence of God. Uh, so we will uh, just uh, move on into this, but by the time you get to the end of chapter 8, if you just took chapter 7 and 8, and you could, nothing to stopping us to add the first six chapters as well, but in just 7 and 8, uh, we will have seen males, females, old, young, clean, unclean, elite, and common. In other words, Jesus is presenting himself as the, the savior of the world, of anybody in the world. Status in the world means nothing uh, relative to, to Jesus Christ. So let's begin the first three verses, verses 40 to 42, introduce the first miracle. And right off the bat, it's very important in verse 40, uh, Jesus has returned from the crowds in the Decapolis on the east side. You remember when Jesus was over there, the response of that crowd was, please leave. We don't want you here. They were, they were uncertain. They didn't know how to assess. They had not seen him. They had not been around him. Uh, and it, there were just a lot of things uh, to make that a negative experience for them, mainly fear. They didn't know what to do with this. They did know the demoniac. They knew that man had, had been there for years. And when that demoniac is suddenly healed, they don't know what to do. So they tell Jesus, please leave us. He goes back to the area of, of Capernaum at the, at the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee, where he left from uh, not uh, too, too long before. And the crowds there are waiting for him, and they're zealous for him. Now, there's something that needs to be understood uh, throughout the Gospels. This crowd is with Jesus all the time. They're following him. They're waiting for him. They're, they're this, that, or the other. Uh, they are mainly spectators. They're not there for the right reasons. Now, some of them, I'm sure, are going to be uh, touched by Jesus, and if it's uh, his will, they will become his children. But mostly this crowd is a crowd of, of people waiting to see their, their curiosity. Same way today uh, that crowds will gather at um, significant and significantly unusual events. Uh, they're, they're there to see what happens next. They're not really thinking through what it is uh, that's going on before them or why they're even present, but they want to be there. Uh, that's the way you need to look at these crowds. Uh, and, and by the way, when you go through the Gospels, anytime Jesus wants to get very, very serious with his disciples, there will never be this crowd with him. Uh, he, Before he goes to Jerusalem to the cross, he takes his disciples uh, on a men's retreat, if you will, uh, to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, I'm not going to flip my my board to show you on the map, but uh, if you remember from, from last week, Dan to Beersheba, that, that phrase covers the extreme north to the extreme south of Israel. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is north of Dan. It's even further out. Uh, it is, well, it, it's one of the beautiful, if you go to Israel, don't, don't fail to get up to Caesarea Philippi. It's not easy to get to, uh, but it is worth uh, the trip. Very, very isolated area, uh, very rural and 
and Jesus takes his disciples there for that event in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, okay, he doesn't use these words, but what he's really saying is, it's time to fish or cut bait, disciples. He knows he's about to go to Jerusalem to a cross, and he's not going to be with them anymore. So he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you know, you're Elijah, you're this, you're that. He said, okay, great. But who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter comes forward with that a magisterial declaration. Uh, so this crowd, when you see these crowds, uh, they are not uh, sitting there clamoring, uh, listening at every word that comes out of his mouth. So he's back now in the Caesarea area or the Capernaum area. And uh, he goes in verse 41, encounters an unusual man named, named Jairus, who it says is in verse 41, a ruler of the synagogue. Now that's a very important position that this man holds. Uh, because he is ruler of the synagogue, what that means is he's going to oversee the full teaching ministry of this synagogue. He will determine who preaches and who doesn't. Uh, he leads in public worship. He's a well-respected leader. And it says he falls at Jesus' feet. Uh, this is, a, of course, uh, a man who, similar to Nicodemus, he's steeped in, in Judaism and things of that nature. Uh, but this man is desperate. And all of those worldly things tend to fall away when we get into a situation that is desperate. And this man is such a man. He falls at Jesus' feet and implores Jesus to come to his house. Uh, very reverential, uh, begging, unusual things for the leader of a synagogue to be doing. Most synagogue leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees in particular, would not have done this. Verse 42, Luke says his only daughter, Luke, uh, by the way, this, this, uh, these couple of miracles that we're reading about today are discussed in Matthew and Mark as well. Luke is the only one that mentions that this uh, is this man's only daughter. Uh, the others will say he is, his daughter is dying, but uh, Luke mentions his only daughter. I, I mentioned early on one of the characteristics of Luke, and we're going to see two uh, singular characteristics of Luke, is he is especially aware of women, and he pays inordinate attention to women relative to Matthew, Mark, uh, as they go through their gospel story. And, and it doesn't surprise me that, that Luke is pointing to the poignancy of what is going on in this man's life. Uh, she's around 12 years old and she's dying. So Jesus immediately goes with Jairus to his home, but there's this crowd to deal with and the crowd is pressing in and slowing progress. Now you, you need to imagine what this man is thinking. Uh, he knows that his daughter is back at, at the house dying and he's trying to get this one man that he's seen perhaps at least he's heard of this man being able to raise people from the dead or heal them and prevent their death. So he wants to get there as quickly as possible, but there's a crowd and they're gumming up the works. They're slowing things down. His tension is building. This is a matter of life and death after all. Uh, and this is where the providence uh, angle comes into these two uh, miracles. Uh, providence, by the way, if, if you go to the Latin on it, pro widow, uh, widio actually, pro before widio to see. Uh, providence of God means he sees beforehand. He knows beforehand what's going to happen. 
Jesus knows absolutely with certainty what is going to happen over the next couple of hours here. Uh, Jairus doesn't understand that. Uh, All he knows is that his daughter is back home and is dying and he needs this man to be there as quickly as he can get him. But Jesus is in the middle of a crowd. Now, it's at precisely that point with Jairus wringing his hands that the second miracle in inroads here. It it, uh, interferes, if you will. It um, interrupts the flow uh, in a totally different direction. Also completely providential. Verse 43, enter the second desperate person. 43 says, a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Interesting that Luke, a physician, says she'd spent all her money, all her living on physicians uh, who could not heal her. He says she could not be healed by anyone. Uh, discharge of blood. No one, of course, has a clue what that means. Uh, some sort of uterine hemorrhage, perhaps, but it, it's fairly irre- irrelevant. What is relevant is the fact that whatever condition this woman had, it made her unclean in Judaic law. If you want to read about that, go to uh, Leviticus chapter 15, begin in verse 25 and following, and you'll read about precisely what this woman Uh, has suffered because of it. She too is desperate for completely different reasons. Uh, This isn't a leader of the community. This is as far away as you could get from that because she has suffered not only physically, but she interestingly has suffered as long with her issue of blood as Jairus has enjoyed the life of his daughter in his presence, both of them 12 years. She has been ceremonially unclean for every moment of those 12 years. Now, what that means is nobody can or will touch her. If they do, they become unclean. No husband, no long friendships. She's an outcast. She has no love. She has no embrace. She cannot enter her synagogue, can't go to church worship. She has no money because she spent it all on physicians who did nothing uh, to heal her. She has no strength. She has no hope. And that woman providentially finds herself on the edge of a crowd with the one person, the one God that could do something about all of this. Uh, There's a uh, Kent Hughes it's fascinating to me to me to read different uh, commentators. Uh, they each come at, at things with a very uh, clearly unique uh, perspective. But uh, Kent writes at this point, talking about providential stuff, about a, a small outpatient surgery procedure that his wife was underwent. And at the end, it was, it was supposed to be a very, very brief thing, less than an hour. And the doctor came out, the surgeon came out and said, you know, everything went well. And he's waiting to, to bring his wife home. And she's not there. She's not there. She's not there. And he begins to wonder, has something, something clearly is amiss. He doesn't have a clue what it is. Nobody had spoken with him. So he has to go and investigate. And it turns out that in this vital surgery, an artery was nicked. And they can't stop the bleeding. And over the next four or five hours, 
his wife is reduced to the edge of death. And precisely at that moment, his wife, who was a nurse, had a good friend, also a nurse. The two of them worked in a blood lab. This friend happened to come by just to see how the surgery had gone. And Kent tells her he's wringing his hands. He's, he's like Jairus at this point. He's wringing his hands. Say, my wife is about to die because he can't stop her bleeding. Well, the two of those nurses happened to stumble upon, put quotes, big quotes around those words, uh, happened to stumble upon a technique that was not uh, a normal technique for stopping a blood flow. So she says, well, look, we tell them to try this. They tried it and it helped. And it, long story short, it saved this woman's life. It saved Kent Hughes's life. So he goes into this uh, this uh, discussion about the, the unique providential workings that had to take place. All of those pieces had to come together. Uh, his wife's friend, she happened to be uh, a knowledgeable friend in exactly the area that his wife was suffering. She happened to drop by uh, unannounced at precisely the right time. The, the doctors in the hospital had to listen to this nurse when she came in and said, why don't you try something else? And I don't know what it was. Uh, physiologically, uh, technically, that, that they tried. But the point is, this woman is exactly the same position. Now, this woman normally doesn't get around people. If they see her coming, they would distance themselves from her, but they don't now because it's a crowd and their focus is on Jesus. So she's able to get into this crowd and work her way through it to him. It's... Uh, I'll tell you something else that's going on in this woman's life. You read about all of this, uh, what would what would be true of her because of this uh, uncleanness, and it's the same exact picture of you and me with our sinfulness before we knew Jesus. We are in exactly the same boat. Hers is physiological. Ours was sinful. Hers is also sinful, but that's not going to be the point of this particular passage. Um, we're desperate. And we're seeking Jesus. So in verse 44, this woman has a plan. Again, made possible simply because of the crowd, the commotion, the confusion. She has faith in Jesus. That may be the, the thinnest, the, just a, a thread's width of faith. And maybe you wouldn't even call it faith. I would. But she doesn't know. She's no, just like Jairus, she's desperate. So she's going to go and see this man. She makes her way through the crowd unnoticed because, again, their focus is, is on Jesus. She comes up behind him, and it says she touched the fringe of his garment. Uh, now, that's probably a reference to tassels. He would have, Jesus would have had a, um, a, a cloth um, garment over a shoulder that had two tassels at the corners on the back of and two tassels at the corners on the front. Uh, I used to read that passage, and I thought, how in the world in the middle of a crowd does she get down? I read fringe of his garment as, as meaning the bottom of this long flowing thing. Uh, she wouldn't have been able to do that. It's probably, and it doesn't matter, she, any part of the garment of Jesus, she touches. Uh, she comes up behind him and touches the fringe. She wanted to remain undetected, not surprisingly. She also didn't want to make Jesus unclean. What's the result? She is healed immediately. 
She feels this surge of, of grace and power coming from Jesus that heals her immediately. Now, this is uh, not that unusual an event. I want to uh, read a couple of similar things from the book of Acts uh, that have to do with this uh, tangential healing, I'll call it. Uh, Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's an area of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Uh, healing shadow, apparently. If you go to the 19th chapter of Acts, and remember the book of Acts is also written by Luke. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 say this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So this uh, event here in Luke chapter 8 is not unusual. But keep in mind, a lot of people read this kind of thing, and then we assume, uh, you know, maybe something like this continues. The whole point of this, these particular years in which the three years or so where Jesus is publicly ministering and the lifetime of the apostles, Jesus is giving that group of 12 inordinate influence and power in order to grow the church. When those 12 are gone, when the disciples are gone and Jesus is resurrected, these things are not happening. Uh, we should not uh, expect to be healed by touching uh, the garments of, of a preacher or something of that nature. Uh, but uh, this woman has done that and she has been healed on the spot. Verse 45, Jesus felt it too. Now, Jesus knew it. Two, but here's what's going to transpire. He asked, who touched him? He's in a big crowd. Peter, there in verse 45, gets uh, a little surly, as Peter uh, will, is wont to do, a, b- a bit impatient, perhaps. He, he says, uh, come on, there's a, I mean, we're at the Super Bowl. I don't know who touched you. I don't know who, who uh, a lot of people touched you, is what Peter is, is implying here. Verse 46, Jesus repeats the question, someone touched me. Now, the effect on the woman of all of this, verse 47, her cover's blown. This woman, remember, this is she's been 12 years, not just avoiding people, but being, I'm sure, criticized and marginalized by everybody that got uh, around it. If you remember the movie Ben Hur, most of us love that movie. Uh, you remember when uh, when the mother and the daughter have leprosy and they're in the leprous colony, and uh, Ben tries to go down there and bring food to them and everything, and they say, "No, no, get away, get away." This is something similar to what this woman's been doing for twelve years. But now Jesus is saying, "Somebody here, I want to talk to." In front of the big crowd. This is the last thing this woman wants to happen. 
Uh, she's been exposed. He calls her out in public. And not surprisingly there in verse 47, she's trembling with fear. But she falls down before Jesus and recounts the miracle. Now, why would Jesus put this woman through this? I think there's a number of very good reasons. It's not because he didn't have a clue who touched it. This is, this is the God of the universe. This is the God who can think a thought and create a galaxy. He knew who touched it. But he wanted to give her an opportunity, an opportunity to publicly glorify him and his name. It's an important aspect of being a Christian. The, the, the best confessions, the most solid confessions are those that we make publicly. Let me just read from a couple of passages. Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And my favorite from Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. As a pastor, I used to... Um, Two events, uh, the, the membership, new, new member classes, but in particular weddings uh, where there are, are vows involved. I, it just drove me absolutely bonkers to, to, uh, to have somebody, I say, do you take this man? I didn't hear you. Do you take this man? This man wants to know. These people want to know. Do you take this man to be your wife? I would be I, I, undoubtedly uh, obnoxious on some occasions. And the same thing when, when new members are joining a church, I want to hear it. Uh, I don't want them to, to mumble up there. Uh, and and Rick, uh, Rick is the same way. We, this is an opportunity to publicly state your faith. If you cannot do it publicly, there should be a question about whether you have done it at all. Now, this woman, he's put this woman through this, and look at this magnificent response by Jesus in verse 48. Daughter, he says. This is the only woman in all of Scripture that Jesus calls daughter. He affirms her. He encourages her. He adopts her. That's what he means by calling her daughter. You are now in my family. Remember, shortly before this, he'd met... His mother and his brothers wanted to see him. He said, my mothers and brothers are those who follow me, whose hearts are with me, who have faith in me, and who are doing and underscoring the validity of their faith. But this woman, this outcast, he says, daughter, uh, he saves her, he heals her, he loves her. And he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I mentioned several unique aspects. Uh, we're seeing them both here in Luke. Luke, again, Luke has far, far more women in his narratives than either Matthew or Mark. Uh, I don't know if that was because of his being a physician. I don't know if it was something in his personal life. I don't know. Uh, but Luke will focus on women 
in a in a very unique way, and he also focuses on the word peace. Now, you and I hear peace, and and Jesus says, "Go in peace," and we think, "Okay, be be relaxed. Uh, the the pressure's off." That's not at all what he's talking about. This is the word shalom, and I'm sure you you know that sh- that word shalom is enormously large and comprehensive in a person's life. What he's telling her is you go forward now in physical peace. You are healed. You don't have to be the pariah anymore. You show up and people, uh, you you can know what it means to be embraced and to be loved again. He, she goes forward in social uh, peace. She goes forward in spiritual peace. Uh, she goes forward as a saved individual. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jairus has been sitting there watching all of this with a daughter who's dying any minute. He was undoubtedly a little bit uh, desperate and impatient to begin with. And as the crowd is moving and Jesus is trying to get to his house, up comes this woman. This is why it's so, uh, I think, uh, why this episode is, is in the Gospels, really. It's, it's underscoring again that Jesus is totally in control. You and I don't always understand that. We're, we're wondering where, you know, I, I need it now. I needed it yesterday. What's, what's, and we sometimes have a, have a difficulty well, getting back and getting in a, a faith mode. Uh, but, uh, Jairus is, uh, is building in his anxiety and his worry. And that, uh, becomes, uh, underscored in verse 49. At this point in the, the narrative, a runner, who's been sent from Jairus's house, comes up with terrible news. He says, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late. Jesus waited too long. This, this is very similar uh, to John's account of Lazarus. Uh, Jesus is up with his disciples, uh, and he's nowhere to be seen, and Mary and Martha are wringing their hands. They know that Jesus loved Lazarus. They were personal friends. And they're wondering, why isn't he here? Jesus is saying, I, I wanted him uh, exactly the way he is. So Jairus, by this time, he's overwhelmed. He's grief, anguish, uh, maybe anger. This is his only daughter, after all, and she is now dead. And then in verse 50, Jesus turns to Jairus and demands faith, not fear. He says, do not fear. Believe and she will be well. Again, God's providence throughout Scripture, whether you're you're back with, with that incredible number of chapters that, that chronicle the Joseph story, uh, everything that is going on in your life and my life, there is no such thing as an accident. There is no such thing. One molecule, you know, the, I think the phrase originally came from Abraham Kuyper. R.C. Sproul used to love it. I love it. Everybody loves it. There, there is no one molecule, no atom, uh, no quark, uh, no nucleus that can ever be aberrant. It can't be because if that were possible, then something could happen that God didn't know was going to happen. It would be unexpected. God doesn't have unexpected issues going on. And the, the challenge to faith is to, to be uh, calm. That's why... Uh, this uh, fourth line here, value of patience dealing with God. 
you, you know, perhaps it's a member of the family who's an unbeliever. Perhaps I, there, there can be thousands and thousands of things that we really like, Jairus like this woman. We, we need it to happen and we need it to happen now. But God isn't going to make it happen now. He's going to make it happen in his time because his time is the best time because he's working on a lot of other things that we are unaware of, among which might be the increase of our own faithfulness. Uh, so when the fear, the anxiety, the sorrow, the regret, the desperation comes into all of our lives, the bottom line is believe it and do it. Obedience. Now, beginning in verse 51, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, semi-problem from 51 to 53. In verse 51, Jesus arrives at Jairus' house and says he allowed only Peter, James, John, Jairus, and Jairus' wife to enter with him, but I think he's still outside the house. The statement he's making in verse 51 uh, is when he says I'm, only Peter, James, John, Jairus, Jairus' wife are allowed to enter with him, uh, that's not necessarily meaning that he's, they've already gone in. It's simply declaring who Jesus is going to allow in. And here's why I say that. In verse 52, Jesus addresses the official mourners and the crowds outside, all who are weeping and mourning. Now, they're weeping and mourning because they're paid to do that. They have professional mourners. It, it's still a custom in the Middle East today. He's addressing them in verse 52, and he says, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but she's sleeping. Interesting to see the, the perspective Jesus has on death. We think of death uh, through these, these awful, awful, maybe it's been a lifetime worth of movies, or it's been just the fear of it, which is totally natural. Uh, Jesus thinks of it as, uh, don't worry about this, uh, it's, it's sleeping, don't worry. Verse 53, they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Now, that's why I say, I think verse 51, Jesus is still outside. Otherwise, if Jesus and James and John go inside and says they laughed at him, you might be led to think Jesus is being laughed at by Peter and James and John. That is categorically not going to happen. They have seen him raise the dead before. They're not going to be the ones laughing. So it's, uh, it's talking about the crowds that are laughing. And because of that, they're barred from entering the house. Jesus won't even let them go in. Then they go into the house. And verse 54, he takes, Jesus takes the girl by the hand and says two words. Child, arise. Similar to peace, be still when he's in the boat. Total, utter control over everything in the universe that you and I live in. Verse 55, her spirit, her soul are returned at once. She rose from her bed and Jesus says, somebody bring some food to my daughter here. In other words, she's waking up as if she was in a dream. Verse 56, to conclude this chapter, Jairus and his wife are amazed, not surprisingly. And then Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody. Now he brings the woman who had the issue of blood, and he said, I'm going to force you out into the open. You're going to speak here. He's saying to uh, to the synagogue leader, don't, don't tell anybody what happened here. Why? Why would he do that? Very important uh, thing to understand about, about Jesus and about <coughs> being a Christian. His performing of miracles is not the centerpiece of his ministry. 
His performing of miracles as we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as we go through the Acts of the Apostles, those things are done to bring credibility and to, and to uh, that sort of thing. Credibility to come so I will listen to the true message. The problem is not the times in my life when I need a miracle and only a miracle <coughs> to help out of a crisis. The crisis I've got is my sinful heart. That's what I need Jesus for. And that's what Jesus offers me. That's the one thing I can do absolutely nothing about. And that, frankly, is the greatest miracle of all. Healing people, right? Raising them from the dead. Jesus, you get the impression. You get, they would just, yeah, rise. That's not the issue. He doesn't want this to become the issue. Jesus is not uh, some little go-to God that, that we, we go and live our lives as we wish until we hit some sort of impasse. And then we say, please, come perform a miracle. I need it. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, wait a minute. You're not, I'm not here for you. You're here for me. You're here to glorify my name and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Uh, miracles are certainly absolutely a part of Jesus' reality. They happen today. Uh, they happen clearly in everybody's life. Sometimes we're aware of them, sometimes we're not. But he comes to save the sick, not the physically sick necessarily, but the soul sick. And in fact, he will call us to joint suffering because we are joint heirs with him. He is going to suffer, we will suffer as his followers. So that's how are we? How are we today? What what state are we in? Anxious, fearful, <coughs> depressed, hurting, in pain, feeling hopeless, distraught, fearful of death. Doesn't matter what it is. If you know Jesus, come to him like the woman with the issue of blood, like Jairus, the head of the synagogue, come to Jesus, even with a trembling, soul-sick heart that your faith is just hanging by a thread in your opinion. It is Jesus who's going to undergird your faith. He will carry you across the finish line. It's not that we've got to be stalwarts of the faith at all times. He'll never cast you out. He'll take you hand, your hand and he will call you son or daughter. He'll give you hope. He'll give you his peace. And he will never ever leave you or forsake you. That's the message of this part of, of Luke and of all of, of this wonderful scripture that we follow. Uh, those who follow Jesus, those who give themselves to him, those who put their faith in him and believe and who are aware that that heart of stone has been torn out and replaced with a heart of flesh to respond to this great Savior need never, ever fear again. Let's pray. Father, this uh, passage is a fascinating uh, as, as is every, every, it, it seems week after week, we open another uh, description of Jesus and we, we marvel. And uh, I pray that will never, ever change, Father, that we should be as giddy as school children every time we open this book and read 
of this faith and this grace that has been poured out upon sinful people. We don't deserve what God has poured out upon us, but he doesn't worry about that. For whatever reason, he has given us his son. And Father, we know many people that don't yet know that son. And he gives us that call to be faithful and to do it. Part of doing our faith is sharing our faith. Not mean-spirited, not not forcefully, but in patience, in time. And believe that Jesus will have all of his children when he comes back a second time. Not one will be missed. We don't know who those people are. So we share the gospel with every human on planet Earth and are privileged to do it, Father, knowing that that gospel heals and that gospel adopts us into the family of God forever and ever. We thank you for these benefits, Father, and pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.